Part fifty nine of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part fifty nine Thomas Picton, Esquire, indicted for applying the torture to Louisa Calderon to extort a confession. The cruelty of the application of the torture to extort confession cannot but be universally admitted in the present enlightened age. The following remarks of the French philosopher Voltaire admirably illustrate this feeling, and serve well to introduce the case of Governor Picton. All mankind being exposed to the attempts of violence and perfidy, says he, detest the crimes of which they may possibly be the victims. All desire that the principal offender and his accomplices may be punished. Nevertheless, there is a natural compassion in the human heart, which makes all men detest the cruelty of torturing the accused into confession. The law has not condemned them, and yet, though uncertain of the crime, you inflict a punishment more horrible than that which they are to suffer when their guilt is confirmed. Possibly thou mayest be innocent, but I will torture thee that I may be satisfied, not that I intend to make thee any recompense for the thousand deaths which I have made thee suffer in lieu of that which is preparing for thee. Who does not shudder at the idea? St. Augustine opposed such cruelty. The Romans tortured their slaves only, and Quintilian, recollecting that they were men, reproved the Romans for such want of humanity. The defendant, Thomas Picton, Esquire, was indicted for putting to the torture a female, Louisa Calderon, one of His Majesty's subjects in the island of Trinidad, in the West Indies, in order to extort confession. Mr. Garrow stated the case for the prosecution, and whilst he expressed the strongest desire to bring to condign punishment the perpetrator of an offence so fragrant as that charged upon the defendant, yet much more happy would he be to find that there was no ground upon which the charge could be supported, and that the British character was not stained by the adoption of so cruel a measure. The island of Trinidad, he said, surrendered to Sir Ralph Abercrombie in the year 1797, and he entered into a stipulation by which he conceded to the inhabitants the continuance of their laws, and appointed a new governor until His Majesty's pleasure should be known, or, in other words, until the King should extend to this new acquisition to his empire all the sacred privileges of the laws of England. He had the authority of the defendant himself for stating that the system of jurisprudence adopted under the Spanish monarch for his colonial establishments was benignant and adapted to the protection of the subject previous to the surrender of this island to the British arms. In December 1801, when this crime was perpetrated, Louisa Calderon was of the tender age of ten or eleven years. At that early period she had been induced to live with a person named Pedro Ruiz as his mistress, and although it appeared to them very singular that she should sustain such a situation at that time of life, yet it was a fact in that climate women often became mothers at twelve years old, and were in a state of concubinage, if from their condition they could not form a more honourable connection. While she lived with Ruiz, she was engaged in an intrigue with Carlos Gonzales, the pretended friend of the former, who robbed him of a quantity of dollars. Gonzales was apprehended, and she also, as some suspicion fell upon her, in consequence of the affair, was taken into custody. 
she was taken before the justice, and, in his presence, she denied having any concern in the business. The magistrate felt that his powers were at an end, and whether the object of her denial were to protect herself or her friend was not material. The extent of his authority being thus limited, the officer of justice resorted to General Picton, and he had now to produce in the handwriting of the defendant this bloody sentence. Inflict the torture upon Louisa Calderon. There was no delay in proceeding to its execution. The girl was informed in the jail that if she did not confess she would be subjected to the torture, that under this process she might probably lose her limbs or her life, but the calamity would be on her own head, for if she would confess she would not be required to endure it. While her mind was in a state of agitation, this notice produced, her fears were aggravated by the introduction of two or three negresses into her prison, who were to suffer under the same experiment for witchcraft, as a means of extorting confession. In this situation of alarm and horror, the young woman persisted in her innocence, and a punishment was inflicted, improperly called picketing. This was a military punishment, perfectly distinct in its nature. This was not picketing, but the torture. It was true, the soldier exposed to this did stand with his foot on a picket or sharp piece of wood, but in mercy to him a means of reposing was afforded on the rotundus major or interior of the arm. Her position might be easily described. The great toe was lodged upon a sharp piece of wood, while the opposite wrist was suspended in a pulley, and the other hand and foot were lashed together. Another time the horrid ceremony was repeated, with this difference, that her feet were changed. The learned counsel here produced a drawing in watercolours, in which the situation of the sufferer and the magistrate, executioner and secretary was described. He then proceeded. It appears to him that the case, on the part of the prosecution, would be complete when these facts were established in evidence, but he was to be told that though the highest authority in this country could not practice this on the humblest individual, yet that by the laws of Spain it could be perpetrated in the island of Trinidad. He would venture to assert that, if it were written in characters impossible to be misunderstood, that if it were the acknowledged law of Trinidad, it could be no justification of a British governor. Nothing could vindicate such a person but the law of imperious necessity to which all must submit. It was his duty to impress upon the minds of the people of that colony the great advantages they would derive from the benign influence of British jurisprudence, and that, in consequence of being received within the pale of this government, torture would be for ever banished from the island. It was not sufficient for him, therefore, to establish this sort of apology. It was required of him to show that he complied with the institutions under circumstances of irresistible necessity. This governor ought to have been aware that the torture was not known in England, and that it never would be never could be tolerated in this country. The trial by rack was utterly unknown to the law of England, though once when the Dukes of Exeter and Suffolk and other ministers of Henry the Sixth had laid a design to introduce the civil law into this kingdom as a rule of the government, for a beginning thereof they erected a rack for torture, which was called, in derision, the Duke of Exeter's daughter, and still remained in the Tower of London, where it was occasionally used as an engine of state, not of law, more than once in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. 
but when upon the assassination of villiers duke of buckingham by felton it was proposed in the privy council to put the assassin to the rack in order to discover his accomplices the judges being consulted declared unanimously to their own honour and the honour of the english law that no such proceeding was allowable by the laws of england such was the effect of the observations of the elegant and learned author of the commentaries of the law of england on this subject and as the strongest method of showing the horror of the practice he gave this question in form of an arithmetical problem the strength of the muscles and the sensibility of the nerves being given it was required to know what degree of pain would be necessary to make any particular individual confess his guilt but what were they to say to this man who so far from having found torture in practice under the former governors had attached to himself all the infamy of having invented this instrument of cruelty like the duke of exeter's daughter it never had existence until the defendant cursed the island with its production he had incontestable evidence to show this ingenuity of tyranny in a british governor and the moment he produced the sanguinary order the man was left absolutely without defence the date of this transaction was removed at some distance it was directed that a commission should conduct the affairs of the government and among the persons appointed to this important situation was colonel fullerton in the exercise of his duties in that situation he attained the knowledge of these facts and with this information he thought it incumbent on him to bring this defendant before the jury and with the defendant the victim of this enormity would also be produced louisa calderon was then called she appeared about eighteen years of age of a very interesting countenance being a mulatto or creole and of a very genteel appearance she was dressed in white with a turban of white muslin tied on in the custom of the country her person was slender and graceful she spoke english but very indifferently and was examined by mr adam through the medium of a spanish interpreter she deposed that she resided in the island of trinidad in the year seventeen ninety eight and lived in the house of don pedro ruiz and remembered the robbery she and her mother were taken up on suspicion and brought before governor picton who committed them to prison under the escort of three soldiers she was put into close confinement and before she was taken there the governor said if she did not confess who had stolen the money the hangman would have to deal with her she was afterwards carried to the room where the torture was prepared her left hand was tied up to the ceiling by a rope with a pulley her right hand was tied behind so that her right foot and hand came in contact while the extremity of her left foot rested on the wooden spike a drawing representing the exact situation with the negro holding the rope by which she was suspended was then shown to her when she gave a shudder expressive of horror which nothing but the most painful recollection of her situation could have excited on which mr garrow expressed his concern that his lordship was not in a position to witness this accidental but conclusive evidence of the fact the remainder of the witness's evidence corroborated the statement of mr garrow she remained upon the spike three-quarters of an hour and the next day twenty-two minutes she swooned away each time before she was taken down and was then put into irons called the grillos which were long pieces of iron with two rings for the feet fastened to the wall and in this situation she remained during eight months the effect produced by the torture was excruciating pain her wrists and ankles were much swollen 
and the former bore the marks of the barbarity employed towards her to the present day. Don Rafael Chandos, an alguazil in the island, bore testimony to his having seen the girl immediately after the application of the torture. The apartment in which she was afterwards confined was like a garret with sloping sides, and the grillos were so placed that, by the lowliness of the room, she could by no means raise herself up during the eight months of her confinement. There was no advocate appointed to attend on her behalf, and no surgeon to her sister. No one but a negro belonging to Ballo, the jailer, to pull the rope. The witness had been four or five years in the post of Alguazil. He never knew the torture inflicted in the island until the arrival of the defendant. There had been before no instrument for the purpose. The first he saw was in the barracks among the soldiers. Before Louisa Calderon, the instrument had been introduced into the jail perhaps about six months. The first person he saw tortured in Trinidad was by direction of the defendant, who said to the jailer, "'Go and fetch the black man to the picket guard, and put him to the torture.' After eight months' confinement, both Carlos and Louisa were discharged. The order for the application of the torture, in the following words, "'Applicas la question a Louisa Calderon,' apply the torture to Louisa Calderon, was then proved to be in the handwriting of the defendant, and the suggestion of the Alcade Begarat, before whom the girl had been examined, that slight torture should be applied, was read. Don Juan Montes then said that he had known the island of Trinidad since the year 1793, that the torture was never introduced until after the conquest of the island, and was then practised by order of the defendant. It was first used with the military in 1799, and two years afterwards in the jail. Mr. Dallas, for the defendant, rested his defence upon the following statements. First, by the law of Spain, in the present instance, torture was directed, and being bound to administer the law, he was vindicated in its application. Secondly, the order for the torture, if not unlawfully, was not maliciously used. Thirdly, if it were unlawful, yet if the order were erroneously or mistakenly issued it was a complete answer to a criminal charge the learned counsel entered at considerable length into these positions during which he compared the law of spain as it prevailed in trinidad to the law of england as it subsisted in some of our own islands and he contended that the conduct of general picton was gentleness and humanity compared to what might be practised with impunity under the authority of the british government Mr. Gloucester, the Attorney-General of His Majesty in the island, was then called, and he deposed to the authenticity of several books on the laws of the island, among which were the Elisondo, the Curia Philippica, the Bobadilla, the Colom, and the Recoplicacion de Leyes. Various passages in these books were referred to and translated, for the purpose of showing that torture was not only permitted in certain cases, but in the particular instance before the jury. Mr. Garrow was then allowed to call a witness, to show that, however such a law might at any time have existed, or might still exist, in Spain, it did not prevail in the West Indian colonies of that power. To this end Don Pedro de Vargas was sworn. He deposed that, during the early part of his life, he had been regularly initiated and admitted to the office of an advocate in the Spanish law courts in the colonies that he had practised after his admission in the regular course for two years, and had resided at five or six of the West India Islands, 
in the pursuit of his profession, and that, according to his knowledge of the book of recapitulation by which the laws were administered, there was nothing contained in it to justify the infliction of torture, nor was torture to his knowledge ever resorted to. There was a law of old Castile, of the year 1260, which justified the torture in certain cases, but he never understood that it extended to the West Indies, and it was so much abhorred in Spain that it was either repealed or had fallen entirely into disuse. Mr. Dallas and Mr. Garrow then severally addressed the jury, and Lord Ellenborough, in summing up, recommended them to divest their minds of every feeling which they might have contracted in the course of the present trial, and to throw every part of the case out of their consideration except that which related to this simple point. What was the law by which the island of Trinidad was governed at the period of its capture by the British? It was for the consideration of the jury whether the law then subsisting authorised personal torture to be inflicted. By the indulgence of the government of this country, the subsisting law was to continue. The question was, what was that subsisting law? The jury would observe that it did not necessarily follow, because Trinidad was a colony of old Spain, that it must therefore in every part have the laws of old Spain. It did not originally form any part of that country, but had been annexed to it, and on what terms there was no positive evidence. It did not appear that either the schedule peculiar to this island, or the recapitulation, embraced the criminal law, or made any mention of torture. So, if torture did subsist in this island, it must be on the authority of law books read to the jury, and it was ascertained by several persons, apparently of competent knowledge, that torture had not, within their recollection, ever been practised on the island. It was therefore for the jury to say, in the absence of all positive proof on the subject, and in the face of so much negative evidence, whether the law of Spain was so fully and completely established in Trinidad as to make torture a part of the laws of that island. Without going through the authorities, he thought the jury might take it to be the existing law of old Spain that torture might be inflicted. It was too much to say that a discontinuance of a practice could repeal a law, but they had to determine whether they were convinced that torture had ever been part of the law of Trinidad, and also whether they were convinced that it was part of the law of Trinidad at the time of its capture. If so, they would enter a special verdict. If otherwise, they would find the defendant guilty. The jury found there was no such law existing in the island of Trinidad as that of torture, at the time of the surrender of that island to the British. Lord Ellenborough. Then, gentlemen, General Picton cannot derive any protection from a supposed law, after you have found that no such law remained in that island at the surrender of it, and when he became its governor, and therefore your verdict should be that he is guilty. By the direction of Lord Ellenborough they therefore found the defendant guilty. The trial lasted from nine in the morning till seven at night. Governor Picton walked the hall of the courts during the whole of the trial. He was a tall man, of a very sallow complexion, apparently about fifty years of age, and was dressed in black. He was accompanied by several of the civil officers of the island. Mr. Dallas moved on the 25th of April for a new trial, upon the following grounds. First, the infamous character of the girl who lived in open prostitution with Pedro Ruiz, 
and who had been privy to a robbery committed upon her paramour by Carlos Gonzalez, and that when a complaint laid against her had been brought before a magistrate, she, refusing to confess, had been ordered to be tortured. Secondly, that Governor Picton, who condemned her to this torture, did not proceed from any motives of malice, but from a conviction that the right of torture was sanctioned by the laws of Trinidad, and that he was rooted in this opinion by a reference to the legal written authorities in that island. Thirdly, that whatever his conduct might be, it was certainly neither personal malice nor disposition to tyranny, but resulted, if it should prove to be wrong, from a misapprehension of the laws of Trinidad. Fourthly, that one of the principal witnesses in this trial, Mr. Vargas, had brought forward a book entitled Recopilacion de Ley des Indies, expressly compiled for the Spanish colonies, which did not authorise torture, and that the defendant had no opportunity of ever seeing that book, but it had been purchased by the British institution at the sale of the Marquis of Lansdowne's library, subsequent to his indictment, and that having consulted it, it appeared that, when that code was silent upon criminal cases, recourse was always to be had to the laws of old Spain, and that those laws sanctioned the torture. The court, after some consideration, granted the rule to show cause why a new trial should not be had, and, as the second trial, which was eventually allowed, was attended with a different result from that of the first, we think it no more than just to the memory of Governor Picton to conclude our notice of this affair with the following apology for his conduct, which is extracted from a respectable monthly publication. In an evil hour the British colonel associated with him in the government of the island, the British naval commander on the station, and Colonel Fullerton. This was, as might naturally have been expected, and as certainly was designed, by one of the parties, the origin of disputes, and the source of anarchy. It is well known that Fullerton, on his return to England, preferred charges against Picton, which were taken into consideration by the Privy Council, and gave rise to a prosecution that lasted for several years. No pains were spared to sully his character, to ruin his fortunes, and to render him an object of public indignation. A little strumpet, by name Louisa Calderon, who cohabited with a petty tradesman in the capital of Trinidad, let another paramour into his house, of which she had the charge, during his absence, who robbed him, with her knowledge and privity, of all he was worth in the world. The girl was taken before the regular judges of the place, who, in the course of their investigation, ascertained the fact that she was privy to the robbery, and therefore sentenced her, in conformity with the laws of Spain, then prevalent in the island, to undergo the punishment of the picket, the same as is adopted in our own regiments of horse. But as it was necessary that this sentence should receive the governor's confirmation before it should be carried into effect, a paper stating the necessity of it was sent to the government house, and the governor, by his signature, conveyed his assent to the judges. The girl was accordingly picketed, when she acknowledged the facts above stated, and discovered her accomplice. That the life of this girl was forfeited by the laws of every civilised country is still a fact that will not admit of dispute, yet clemency was here extended to her, and she was released, having suffered only the punishment above stated, which was so slight that she walked a considerable distance to the prison without the least appearance of suffering, immediately after it was inflicted. But what was the return of the lenity of the governor? He was accused by Colonel Fullerton of having put this girl, whom he had never even seen, to the torture, contrary to law, and 
the caricaturists of England were enlisted in the service of persecution. After a trial which seemed to have no end, after an expense of seven thousand pounds which must have completed his ruin, had not his venerable uncle, General Picton, defrayed the whole costs of the suit, while the expenses of his prosecutor were all paid by the government, his honour and justice were established on the firmest basis, and to the perfect satisfaction of every upright mind. End of part 59